Hi, everyone. This is Todd Hargrove. Welcome to the first installment of the Better Movement podcast. My first guest is none other than Greg Lehman. Greg is a physical therapist, chiropractor, and researcher who studies the link between pain and the way we move. Many of my listeners will know Greg from his excellent blog at greglehman.ca and his very popular course called Reconciling Pain Science with Biomechanics. I highly recommend this course. It's one of the best out there. And there's now an online version of it available at Greg's uh, website. For those not familiar with Greg's work, I'm going to give a very brief summary of what he has to say before we get to the interview. Greg presents an evidence-based critique or reframing of what's often called the kinesiopathological model of treating pain, which is how the overwhelming majority of chronic pain is actually treated if you go to the physical therapist or chiropractor or massage therapist. Kinesiopathology literally means disease caused by movement, so the goal of this method is to find out how your pain might be related to some movement dysfunction that you have, such as having bad posture or bad technique in running. For example, if your back hurts, you go to the physical therapist, you might be told that your low back is too arched or that you need to activate your glutes or stretch your hamstrings or brace your core. Or if, or if you go to the chiropractor, you might hear your spine's out of place or the massage therapist, your fascia uh, is too tight. Uh, if you go to different providers, you'll surely hear different diagnoses and get different treatments. But what they all have in common is the underlying claim that you're having pain because you're moving the wrong way or using your body the wrong way and you need to learn to use it or move it the right way. Uh, what Greg does is an excellent job of pointing out that this model has a lot of problems if you look at the, the relevant research. For one thing, uh, pain is very poorly correlated with objective measurements of posture or movement. Uh, for example, people who slump while sitting actually don't have more back pain. Uh, and efforts to correct posture or movement dysfunctions tend not to do any better than just general exercise, like strengthening or mobilizing the areas that have pain. So exercise is great for pain. We should do more of it. It's healthy. It makes us feel good, and it helps with pain. But it probably works uh, more by simply making the affected tissues less sensitive and more healthy in kind of a general way, as opposed to specifically correcting some alleged dysfunctions. In this episode, I talk with Greg in much more detail about the specifics of, of his treatment philosophy, about what he's been doing recently, some of his personal experience, uh, experiences with uh, pain and movement that inform his work, and what kinds of research he'd like to see if he had an infinite amount of time and money. Here we go. All right. Okay, Greg, thank you very much for coming on my podcast. I guess this is the first podcast. I don't even know if this will see the light of day or whether I'll do another, but you're the first, so thanks for being here. Awesome. The inaugural, right after the inauguration. But probably people will be following it with just as much interest. <laughs> I am wearing Michelle Obama's outfit. <laughs> <laughs> I do look good in burgundy. <laughs> well, so... Uh, What's <laughs> what's been going on the last year? You've normally you're if things were normal right now, you'd be uh, traveling the world, doing your famous course, reconciling pain science with biomechanics. I think it's called. I've attended. It's great. Everyone should go to it. You'd be you know going to all over the world. So what have you been doing since that's not possible anymore? Uh, I like not not a lot. Uh, that and that's the thing. Like. Uh, the, so the course went all, all pre-recorded um, five months ago. And I, was, I, 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 I delayed doing that for so long because I wanted it to look good. I didn't just want to like, you know, stand in front of a wall and, you know. I watched it. I watched it uh, just the last few days and it's excellent. I was impressed with the production value and the, and the aesthetics. And yeah, I took the content I knew would be great. Th thanks. Yeah, I took a long time to do that to make it interesting because I really hate pre-recorded stuff. And I was like, I got to do something a bit different. It's still hard. Uh, but what I'm proud of is, it, you know, it's a bit of a stopgap measure, but if people um, uh, buy that, then they get, they get to use the cost as a credit toward the in-person. Yeah. So you can't lose. 
I, that's what I think. And I, I know that's, I'm so silly, but like, it's just, I think I've taken so many courses in the past where you're excited when you take them and then you're not really sure and you kind of forget stuff. So I've, that's why I always give out my Google drive, I hand out my Google drive and I'll lecture notes from the past six years. But this is nice too, because now you get everything pre-recorded, and then you can go through like the academic stuff. Like there's more online than there is in person. Do you have it like more efficient, like more boiled down and all that kind of stuff because it was online? So it's more efficient, that's for sure. And that lets you get more information, like just the nitty gritty, the sets and reps for power hypertrophy. You know what? The, 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 you don't want to just just regurgitate information at people and uh, add people in person. But online is better for that, for just the here's the stuff, you know, now because in person, you know, like I, we, I like the discussions and the, the talks and the. Right. So you don't have that. You, you take up. a That's a lot of good content comes from the questions and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I always say if the course sucks, it's because the people in it sucked. <laughs> no, that's that's probably fair. Um, so, yeah, I saw your first one. I think the very first one you did or one of the first was in yeah, Seattle. One of the first. Yeah. And then I saw another one after that. And that was years ago. And you've done, I don't know, how many have you done? Like a hundred oh, of these things? Hundreds. Yeah. I've been really like, uh, like pleased and surprised and, uh, you know, it, it's been nice. And I, and, and it's really cool. Well, cool. Uh, I see my words out there a lot now, not even like attributed to me, which is okay because it's just, a lot of it's just caught, caught on. Right. Comprehensive I, I, capacity or movement optimism that, or that, that type of stuff, like, like the themes and the arguments where I don't remember seeing it, you know, 10 years ago and eight, eight years ago. It seems like I think it resonated with some people. So, well, you're good I, with those catchphrases, you know. I mean, I think that those are there's a lot of information in there and that it, it kind of uh, a lot of times it encapsulates a, a lot of complex stuff, but it boils it down to something simple. I mean, what do you got? Comprehensive capacity is what you want to go for as you're a therapist. You say, I, I, you got a new one that I liked. I'm a, uh, I've got a shotgun. I'm not a sniper. What, what does that mean? Yeah, that's that. Cause uh, it's, it's, and that goes with the cup analogy for pain too, that, but we'll get into that. It's sort of like, uh, or what I rather use cause it's less violent is if you're a fisher person, you'd rather treat with a net than just a line, right? You catch, more likely to catch some fish. And it's sort of, I don't know what has to change to get someone better. I don't think anyone does. And then this idea that you find the thing that's so important, like I find the specific problem or the specific driver of dysfunction. And then you're like, ah, I, I'm going to fix that. And then you're going to be better. I mean, I, I try to do that. We talk about that. But at the other, the other end of that is I can't be certain. So let's work on like, building the entire system or the entire person, you know, and yeah. use these big, big general things, be as general as you can, which might be helpful. And then always consider how specific do you have to be? Yeah. So let's say someone comes in that, you know, people come in big percentage of the time, it's going to be, I've got pain in my shoulder. I've got pain in my hip. I've got pain in my knee. I've got pain in my foot. I've got pain in my back. I mean, that covers, is that that's going to cover like big percentage of what you yeah. do, right? How much, of, how much, how many conditions do you really feel like you really need a specific diagnosis as opposed to one of these diagnoses, which isn't really a diagnosis at all. Like when we say you've got plantar fasciitis, that usually just means your heel hurts. Exactly. And same or, with the knee. Or, yeah. or nonspecific low back pain, your back hurts. Most of the time you've got a pretty nonspecific diagnosis. How, how many times, how many conditions do you feel like if I don't get this specific diagnosis, something's really going to go wrong? Yeah, I think I love I love that question because I don't know if you remember, but that's how we start our course, the course. Like, when do you have to be specific? When, when is there like, where are the cases where you really got to nail it and you have very few tr treatment options? And, and where I think they are, are like the more sinister pathological things. Right, you still want to be a good clinician to treat in this general biopsychosocial way, where um, uh, if like fractures or if someone has low back pain, you want to make sure that it's not an abdominal aortic an aneurysm, right? So like when it, or like they got pain behind the knee, well, you certainly don't want it to be a deep vein thrombosis, but you also or calf pain, you don't want it to be like a vascular problem from from the spine because that would have more of a 
that'd be that would have a pretty specific fix. So you but can't it, you can't miss those diagnoses. Those are specific problems. If you miss them, you've made a big mistake. You can't treat them as general problems. You can't say get a good night's sleep or <laughs> let's it's, it's, exercise exactly. more. Yeah, I think it decreases the problem. I think those general things of like nutrition and health and being optimistic will help a little. But I think you you really need to, uh, you know, fix the underlying driver uh, there. Where if, if someone has like, you know, just calf pain with running and it's not a vascular is- issue, it could be like medial tibial stress syndrome or like medial ex- exertion syndrome or like a compartment syndrome or a calf strain. And the treatment for those things are kind of similar, right? Those are kind of diagnoses. Are those the kind of diagnoses that are just more descriptions of where it hurts or are, the, are you referring to a specific pathology with those those diagnoses. So that's, that's where, I mean, I kind of talked about something that, that, that is debatable. Cause like, so some people would say like an exertional compartment syndrome, like Andy Franklin Miller, he's a person to read there. He would say, well, that's just a biomechanical overload syndrome. <laughs> you need to just do, do, you know, too much too soon for what you so That's can just like saying you've got badness in the area or the area is not yeah. prepared for something or. Yeah. Like true compartment syndrome that, that would want to be worried about that because that might need a sur- surgical inter- intervention. Right. But if it's biomechanical overload syndrome, syndrome, then you kind of treat it the same as medial tibial stress syndrome, which just means like it hurts on the medial tibia or in that area. <laughs> Not right. even always right. the tibia. It could be the soleus or the, you know, tibialis posterior. You have no idea. Uh-huh. So, you know, I was kind of curious about your course. Um, how how's it changed over doing it so many different times? You know, you've gotten tons of feedback by about what people already know, what works, you know, and your ideas have changed as well. So, I mean, I saw the earlier versions, and I did really see the the updated version as well. But I'm curious how you've changed it, whether in terms of like your ideas have changed, or you changed the way you present it, or or has there been a change in how much people already know when they walk in, and, and they yeah. already know that, so you don't need to talk about it. That definitely the latter. Uh, people are are certainly more accepting, and which is cool too, because then we all just acknowledge that we have the same problems and same doubts, and then we work on on getting better at that together. Um, uh, but this might surprise you. It I was. It's funny. I just talked to my wife about this today because uh, I was t- I was talking about you and I, and she and I said I don't know how different it is. Like the fundamentals are still there. Like I really, I have the same fundamentals. Uh, what I always try to do is challenge my fundamentals. So uh, if anything, I might find more exceptions to what I think are the most important things uh, for rehab and, and care, but still, still the fundamentals are there. So the, the course is, it's, it's kind of bigger in a way that, uh, that that's the only issue now that the challenge is always, what do we focus on? And that's why I'm happy to have the online because if we don't cover things, I can say, "Don't worry, you get free access to the online." Where uh-huh. Well, can you that. tell us the fundamentals? Because I like this. Yeah, yeah. I like. No, I'm, I've got, I got a question. So I like this fundamentals idea. Uh, you kind of start off with the idea that okay, there's many different treatments. You got McKenzie, you've got Mulligan, you've got people doing manual therapy, yep. physical therapy, and they all seem to be aiming at different targets, but they all hit them with kind of the same frequency, and they all seem to work like a little bit. None of them as well as we'd like. But they all, so let's look at what all these different things have in common. So what what do all these things have in common and what are your big fundamentals for treating pain? Yeah, so when we look at, uh, I think finding like uh, common threads amongst people who disagree is always interesting, you know? So, um, and, and what I often find is a lot of these people who seem different. So you, you could take the classic North American spine stability model of low back pain. And you could contrast that with the Australian, you know, Peter O'Sullivan uh, approach. Uh, one would be like, you know, avoid. Yeah, this is an extreme. I'm, 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 I'm taking them to the extreme just, just for the point. There's always overlap, but it might be like, you know, you know, uh, keep your spine in neutral, keep it stiff. You know, all of those things. Yeah, to help with pain. And and O'Sullivan is famous for saying, you know, just flop, relax, bend as much let as let it you all like. hang out. You know, let it all hang out, no stiffness at, at, at all. And people think, wow, they, they seem really different. And I'm like, they're the same. <laughs> they, not, those people would probably hate that when I say that. <laughs> Maybe I'm onto something if everyone's angry. And I say they're similar because what they're both doing is is 
they're finding ways for people to move with less pain, right? At where O'Sullivan is probably seeing a lot of people who are afraid to move, who've been told their spine is unstable, they need to brace, they um, so that 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 temporary avoidance pattern is now ingrained in them, and then it's causing persistent problems and getting in the way of recovery. So Pete is excellent at like building confidence and optimism in people and challenging their beliefs about that and showing them how resilient they are, gets them moving again with less pain. And then the big thing is looks at all the things in their life that makes them healthy, you know, works on the multidimensional nature of pain and then has them work on, you know, meaningful goals and activities that they want to start doing again and facilitates them adopting, like starting to do those things again. Uh, but at the, the North American model, which is your classic kinesiopathological model, they kind of do that too. They, they would want to find movements that are aggravating and teach people how to avoid them, uh, probably temporarily. That there's some debate in there of how long it, that's where the debate is. So temporarily avoid you know, pain triggers or drivers, and then ideally get people back to doing the things that they're missing, like deadlifting and running and jumping and all that stuff. Uh, and recognizing that pain is, is biopsychosocial and there's other drivers there. So like it's, they're kind of similar. I just wonder like if they're seeing different people, they're different people get attracted to those different models. And so it just reinforces the idea um, that they're so different. And I'm like, maybe, maybe I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure how different they are. I think their fundamentals are similar in some ways. But it's similar fundamentals, but kind of a different different strategies. And you said, uh, you had a phrase that I like, one of these strategies, the one that was the, you know, the spare of the spine, yeah. let's try to stay in neutral, uh, try to move the right way. You called that uh, correct and protect. And the other yeah. strategy you called more expose and adapt. And there's kind of a dichotomy there. And I thought it was kind of similar to your dichotomy, uh, calm shit down, build shit back up. Yeah. They're, they're you both. want to do both. They're both doing that. I think they just disagree on the right way for the spine to move. That's sort of the idea. Yeah. But well, if you're the kind of person that really believes in the power of the body to adapt, you're going to be a little bit more exposed and adapt. Like if you're, yeah. if you're Sullivan, you, you, O'Sullivan, you're not afraid of exposing people to stuff that a lot of people, I mean, he gets in there and has people do stuff that's, I, I watched him and I was scared watching. Yeah. <laughs> Because I thought, oh my God, he's going to flare him up. He's exposing some someone to oh, something yeah. that looks dangerous. He, he he's aggressive. That's that's for sure. And that's that's your Valayan. That's the Johan and Valayan approach, where when fear is driving the avoidance, and so that's the classic graded exposure, which isn't even that graded. It's more <laughs> choose something not not low on the hierarchy, but high on the fear hierarchy. And then yeah, they I'm, do. I'm, I'm kind of scared to do that. <laughs> So, but so, but that's part of what it means to be a movement optimist. Am I right? You believe in the yeah. power of the body to adapt. Yeah, and so there's a fundamental, like, and, and then, and then the argument here is, okay, what catalyzes adaptation? Adaptation, and it's stress. It's challenging something, and so that's what to me that's what pain science is. It's just another stressor, right? Or having someone move differently, it's another stressor. It's both a biological or a tissue-based stress, stressor and an emotional-based stressor. And we're trying to catalyze some change in the person that makes them reconceptualize their themselves and, and, and their pain experience. Uh -huh. have, have you had experiences with people where you were maybe too optimistic about their ability to adapt to the things that you were exposing yeah. to? Yeah. Uh, uh, them uh, up? And uh, absolutely. And so that that's why, again, this morning on Twitter, I, I brought up this idea or like, I think one of another fundamental, every patient is like, you're asking yourself a question, right? And, and one that we always ask is, do I expose, right? Or do I protect, right? And for sure, like sometimes we have to protect. And I, I would think sometimes I don't, I don't protect enough and I do too much exposure. Or the way I did the exposure uh, still set them up to flare to, to flare them up. I didn't I didn't have the precursors in place. So I've definitely had patients where I you might laugh, but I'm teaching the neutral spine <laughs> and hip hinging, and I was like, you know what? For a little bit, let's try this. Yeah. You don't have to do this forever. It's just temporary. You know. Yeah. So your uh, your movement optimism, your kind of belief that I mean, in in general, you you would say that 
that we've we've tilted the balance too far towards the correct and protect and not enough towards the uh, expose and adapt, right? Yeah, definitely like eight, 10, 15 years ago. I think it's shifting now. Yeah. How, so in your own personal experience, I mean, you're an athlete, you've had pain, you've gotten yourself into pain, you've gotten yourself out of pain, you've adapted to different things. Yeah. I mean, what's your personal experience? Are you the type of person that does well at adapting to things after you've been exposed? Because I know that you've you've told some stories about, yeah, I've, I had this really bad back pain and then I went right out and when I went water skiing and then I was fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a neat, that was a neat one. Uh, uh, but right, so right now I do a lot of, I used to do a lot of gymnastics, but with the lockdown, it's hard. Uh, and then I decreased it throughout the summer. And then in September, my shoulder started getting really sore because I was doing lots of renovations, but I really wasn't loading it. It was quite ironic. I'm like, I've been loading the hell out of it and now I have very low load and I can't put my arms over my head. I can, but it's sore. I can't do it violently. And that's the nature of gymnastics is violent arm raising. But I didn't care because it's lockdown. And then like three weeks ago, I was like, okay, this is a problem because I signed up for a tumbling class with my 13-year-old. We're going to start doing trampoline and tumbling again. I'm like, okay, I got to I gotta fix this. And uh, and so it hurts, certain motions hurt. So I'm avoiding some, but I'm loading the shit out of it in the areas that feel good. So it's a balance of like expose. And the assumption here is you expose in these generally not sensitive positions, they will carry over to the sensitive ones. So I'm doing a classic, like a little bit of exposure and a lot of protection here. Just load it. There's another good phrase. I don't just know if that's it. yours, but you've popularized it. Just load it. Yeah. I think a bunch of people just said it at the same time. You know, it's kind of easy. It's just Nike. Like it's not like calculus. I've got, I've got this kind of conjecture about musculoskeletal pain that tell me what you think about this. Speaking of just load it. I'd say for a very high percentage of common musculoskeletal complaints, you know, my foot hurts, my knee hurts, my hip hurts, my low back hurts, my shoulder hurts, the kind of stuff that, that you see a lot hurts between my shoulder blades. I conjecture, I hypothesize that you can effectively treat that with a simple kind of algorithm, which would be basically something like just load it, do some strength training in that area for the muscles that cross that area, that are close mm -hmm. to that area. Um, not so much that you're going to flare it up or not so much that during the session, you'll go past, let's say a four, not so much that it'll feel worse the next day, but enough so that you can stimulate some adaptations in there and get stronger and you can progress it. So basically you just kind of do some strength training in the muscles nearby the area that hurts without making yourself worse. My, my conjecture is that if you use that approach, it will be just, it will very likely be on average, be just as successful as any other type of physical therapy you could do in that area. Uh, I'm sure there's some exceptions to that rule. What, what do you think about that? Oh, I'm, I totally agree. If, if you look at what we do in our assessments, we try to recreate the pain, right? That's what all of our tests, we try to recreate it. What hurts? What hurts? Show me yeah. what hurts. And then we make a call like, okay, are you, are you avoiding that and not doing it? Uh, or are you doing too much of that? So if they're already doing too much of that, you know, then we probably back off. But if they're not, then we say, let's load it like you said. And, and I, I would only massage your message and say, I don't know if it's strength that's meeting the recovery. I would just say it's, it, you're applying some stress to get comfortable doing it again. Yeah, I'm definitely not saying strength mediates the recovery, but if you do yeah. the strength training, oh yeah, yeah, you will maybe improve mobility. Maybe that's what mediates the recovery. Yeah, totally. You I maybe mean, you will improve awareness. Maybe you'll improve inflammation. Maybe you'll improve uh, functional movement patterns. But you yeah. can get all that stuff from those strength training exercises. Totally. If you have knee osteoarthritis and it hurts going upstairs, what what are the exercises going to be? knee extension under load. Yeah. And they'll eventually look like stair exercises. I bet you'll start with a wall squat or a knee extension. Then you'll do a, a squat, a regular squat. Then you do a lunge and then you start doing stair step ups. And then you're like, okay, so the thing that hurt was stairs. What are we going to do? Well, stairs eventually. <laughs> That's right. Like, it's a, like exercise prescription is easy in, in some way. 
the challenge there is like when to back off, when not to do it, what else has to change, right? Like, does someone have to believe that it's the right thing to do, right? So well, they have to if they're going to do the exercises for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and the only the only time I would like say the idea of like the strength training is not the right thing, and I do lots of this more of this now probably than ever, and I just don't know how to write it, and I don't really have any research on it. There's a subset of people who are always trying to fix themselves, like with a stretch, with an exercise with the, I don't know, massage, like, and it's like, it's like hearing dripping in the corner, like, or in your house. If you just keep thinking about that drip, that's all you can hear, right? And you just perseverate. And I think there's a subset of people when we keep trying to fix it, we make it worse in some way, right? We, we amplify our response to like a normal discomfort sensation and we turn it from a two out of 10 to a six, yeah, I'm, I'm that. I'm kind of that guy myself. Uh, I know there's definitely <laughs> people like that. And and the people that come to me, uh, I get a dis. I, there's not that many people uh, like that out there. But the kinds of people that come to me, I get a lot of people that are like that. And then it's you know it's there's a lot of like talking them down from the idea that everything has to be perfect in my body before <laughs> there can be anything less than a total disaster. Yeah, yeah, and. I find, and I'm not sure how you practice, but sometimes I'm like, no more rehab exercises, but we're going to do more. What do you want to do? Oh, rock climb, golf. Okay. So let's focus on those things. And if you need metrics, fine. It's the, it's the number of uh, V4s you do when you're climbing and the number of rounds you play and your club head speed. So we shift, we shift there because some people like numbers and to cat, like to catalog these things. So that's what we focus on is doing that stuff. Right. So what else have you been doing? Uh, you, I mean, sometimes you're doing tumbling. I see sometimes you're doing rock climbing. Sometimes you're doing skateboarding. What's your, and then you, and then it seems like you shift between these. How do you decide which new hobby to take up? Probably weather dependent. I can't do them all. That's the problem. Like rock climbing really got set aside this year and I did more skateboarding. Like I, I might go skateboarding later, even though it's minus three, but it's dry. Ooh. Yeah. So I, I might, I might go later and then you know, hockey, it's, it's, it's winter in Canada. So hockey, but now I'm actually strength training more than ever to build up my tumbling. You're going to get that deadlift above uh, hundred. I'd like to do two times my body weight. That's all I'm not. I I don't really strength train. I kind of hate it, but now I'm actually enjoying it, which is weird. Yeah. Well, um, what can you, you told this, you, you have this blog post that came out a while ago about a terrifying episode with uh, stomach pain. Could you tell us about that? Cause it's, there's kind of a, an interesting uh, pain science lesson that, that comes along with it. Well, yeah, there, there, there is, it's uh, I had stomach pain like in August of last year. So, well, 2019 uh, didn't go away in a month. I've always had a sensitive stomach, but this was in a weird location. It was higher up, like where the stomach is not lower down. Uh, hurt wasn't influenced by food or drink or exercise often felt better when I was exercising would be at night at rest, you know, went to the doctor, tried medications. None of that shit helped. Wasn't really given a diagnosis. We're two months in. I'm now I'm like really worried about it. You know, when you can't recreate it or make it worse or better, you start Googling things, you know? Uh, so I see like a specialist, we get the abdominal ultrasound nothing on there but i'm like how sensitive is that you know checking out my stool and all the doc's like your stool black i'm like no it's not cool and then what happens the next day it's fucking black you know (laughs) i'm like what is going on i i'm i'm not i'm not kidding but i called like my insurance agent and increased my life insurance i was considering not going to the doctor for a while as I increased my insurance. And then I was going to go just to make sure I wouldn't get like a claim denied in case I died. You know, like I'm thinking stomach cancer because it doesn't make any sense. I'm Googling everything. I'm thinking how, about how much, it all the time. How much during this time are you thinking this is a psychosocial thing? Like a little, but it can't be that much. It still fucking right. hurts. Like I, I know these things and I'm like, fine, if it's psychosocial, I still want to, I want to get the sinister shit checked out. So I, I get in, I get, so three months in, I'm just as bad as ever. Still taking medication, not really helping. Uh, I get the scope done by this doctor and, 
And uh, she tells me, well, I'm all drugged up that, you know, she didn't really find anything. But then like three weeks later, I have the follow up and it's still it kind of felt better when she said that. But then I started thinking, does she really understand when I was asking questions about sensitivity and specificity? Like because now they're going to do a biopsy of what they had. I'm like, I could still have something really sinister here. And I had my follow up and I was just terrified going into the follow up. And uh, and I'm like, so I'm OK. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, there's nothing really bad. And she's like. No, I'm like, I thought I told you that. I'm like, yeah, but I wasn't sure you understood. Like, I don't know. She's like, cancer. No, you're fine. There's nothing. Like, she's like, do you, do you, I don't know. I don't really have a diagnosis. Do you want to, do you want more follow up to know what's going on? I'm like, what do you, I'm like, but it's not, it's not sinister. She's like, no, it's just could be this. I'm like, well, I don't care then. Like, I can have stomach pain as long as I'm not fucking dying. <laughs> and then literally, like, it, I'm not kidding. Within three days, like, if it was a seven out of 10, it was a one. And then it's been like that for the, a year and a half or wherever. It's so unbelievable. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I still think there's something biological, like something tissue based going on in the stomach. There's got to be something, right? With Without a doubt. But what I did with that was the was the disability and the suffering. And, and I would say that my emotions and my worry not only like had me respond to the discomfort and increase my discomfort, I would bet they actually did something physiological in my stomach to increase whatever was going on down there. Yeah. It's not just amplifying a message. It's like going down there and changing yeah. the message because, I, because these are pretty connected sometimes. And I, and I think it's what we do with pain sometimes with back pain for sure. And pelvic pain is there's definitely something and or CRPS. There's absolutely something in the tissue, right? It's not all in your head, but our emotions and our past experience and our worries, they amplify what's going on. And so it always makes me wonder, like, what are we treating? Like, are we just treating our response to something that's in yeah. the tissue? And how often do we really treat the tissue? Cause if you go around and poke everybody, like I'm always sensitive. I'm doing uh, testing of my lumbar spine kinematics. So my wife has to palpate and put the sensors on and she, every single spinous process she pokes, I'm like, Oh my God, stop pressing so hard. Like everyone hurts. I'm so tender, but I have no back pain, but everyone hurts. And, and so like, I think we all have this propensity for discomfort, but it's kind of what we do with it uh, sometimes. Yeah. And I'm not saying a lot of that uh, there aren't issues where, oh, no, it's really tissue, you know, peripherally driven. That definitely occurs. But yeah. yeah so do you like to I, I mean, when you're thinking about all the complexities of pain, something that I helps me is thinking, is this a peripheral issue? Is this a more central issue? So, I mean, you could have and, and when I say more central issue, you could have an issue with like the dorsal horn in the spine, which is more central. And then the brain is really central. <laughs> yeah. so like when you, like when you say with like CRPS that, that, you know, that, that's a situation where what's going on here can affect what's going on in the periphery. Right. So it can get really yeah. complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's why I, uh, I always felt guilty or like subs, like subpar, like not a good clinician when I would take biopsychosocial courses and they'd list all these cycles like all the factors that can influence pain and then they have like a radar plot where you would try to say oh i think it's it's predominantly this one or predominantly that one and you still see these models out there and i'm like i cannot do that i have no idea what the most important thing is because because you can have depression so just because you score high on a depressive uh, scale that doesn't mean that's contributing a lot to your pain do you know what i mean yep. a high score in and of itself or you can have lots of tendinosis that doesn't mean that that is contributing a lot to your pain. We have no idea. And so when you, when you can't know, that's, that's why I believe in treating with the big net, right? What do you want to work on, right? These are all things that could potentially be contributors. Not all of them have to change. What do you think would be, what, what would you like to do? Yeah. They say, I don't know. I would say, well, this is what I'm good at working on with you and coaching and teaching and being your therapist. But if I'm missing something, let's get some help too. Or if there's something you want to do that I can't do, well, then I definitely need help. Well, I, I got a specific question for you about, about backs and kind of this peripheral versus central issue. What is going on locally or peripherally when someone's back goes out? 
So you know what I'm what I mean. My back yeah. goes out. Their back is completely fine. Then they bend down to pick up something. They go ah, and then they can't move. And then they're all tilted over the side, and they're in terrific pain for a week. Or and and then gradually they get better, and then they're completely fine. Yeah. So, you know, we say that oh, pain's weird. Pain's complex. There's a central thing. There's a blah blah blah. But I mean. I think that that must be peripherally driven in some way, because why is pain so much weirder in the back than in other areas? You don't have weird, super unexplainable things going on in other parts of the body, but you do in the back. So what is going on locally, peripherally when that kind of thing happens? I have two theories. One is more my theory. The other one is more what gets has been taught for 30 years. The one taught for 30 years is this idea that, that it's disc, it's disc related. Yes, right. uh, and you can have, the way disc herniations occur, they start on the inside and they work their way out, okay? Uh, and most of us will have disc bulging. So it's a normal uh, occurrence, um, kind of probably unavoidable. But as you have that like a disc changing and the material starts to work its way out, there's no nerves on the inside. So there's no... Nothing is telling your brain or nervous system that that damage is occurring. But at some point in time, it might just, the material could eke its way out to the periphery of the disc. Yes. And then that's where the nerves are like, what the hell is this? (laughs) Right? We have never seen you before. What are you doing here? And you have this massive neuroimmune reaction. Right. So you have like the sensitization where it's inflammatory driven. And to me, like inflammatory pain is like vinegar on a cut. It hurts like mad. So like you get an MRI scan, you hardly see anything. But when you have like radiculopathy or even like a little back pain episode like this, like it can really, really hurt. And then and so how long does it take to have this for this neuroimmune reaction to settle down? Three to seven days right? It, it's consistent with an inflammatory mediator, just this massive response. And some of us just freak out and you go to the hospital and you can't move. And then a week later, you're fine. The other theory is similar, but it's less structural. It's more like, um, oh, and then I would say, as you get worried, we also increase like neurogenic inflammation and all of this stuff. So our, our psyche and, you know, all these factors and the meaning of pain can all change our response to that thing going on. The other idea is very similar. It's like we, if you ever turn your neck quickly, you get like a jolt of pain or your elbow locks during tricep extension, or you have a, you step on a stair and you have massive patella pain or kneecap pain. Like I get that stuff all the time. And I think that happens in the spine where it's just a tweak, just some little weird tweak. It hurts and might not be the disc. It could be anything. There's definitely nociception, but then we have this freak out reaction where we overprotect and now the muscles jump in, right? And they start squeezing. And then we have a neuroimmune reaction where it's neurogenic inflammation driven from beliefs and worries and fears and all that stuff. And then we actually, I don't wanna say cause, but we like our emotion, like we actually cause the problem. And then slowly over time, that just settles down, same thing, right? So kind of the same pathway. It's just what the difference is, what's the, uh, the instigating factor. Yeah, those it's are like great a, explanations. I kind of like the first thing. one in terms of like the specific instigating factor. But what they both have in common is something new happens, something threatening happens, the whole system freaks out and there's yeah. a prolonged reaction to it. And eventually it'll probably figure out this is not really a problem uh, yeah. and kind of return to normal. It, it reminds me, I always think, I like to think in terms of uh, like the the TSA. The TSA is the... Um, the American version of all the security you have at uh, see something, say something. Yeah. You, see something, say something. So at, at the airports, but so that's the low level. There's a bunch of low level people at the TSA that are, that, that are just looking out for anything and saying, if you see something, say something, you know, the machine's going to buzz, but then there's this whole kind of like group intelligence to the whole system, which is not that intelligent at all because <laughs> it gets traumatized by like some guy, the shoe bomber guy. Yeah, yeah. Like there's the shoe bomber guy that that uh, comes in and tries to put a bomb in his shoes. That's why we're all taking our shoes off today. I know. 
I don't know if there's a single person in the whole TSA that believes that's necessary, but the institution as a whole has this institutional memory of that. It'll never fucking forget. And so we're all going to be taking off our shoes for the rest of our lives because it can't get out of this weird traumatic memory that, that it has of that. And you don't even need anyone to actually believe that it's that you need to take off the shoes, but the system as a whole now, you know, believes that. Yeah, that's that's it. It's like we um we overprotect and we overreact because it's safer to do so. And then we get we get better at overprotecting. And especially when there's this really dramatic event. So there's all sorts of dangerous things that are happening at airports, but this one really gets a hold of people's consciousness. It really gets their attention. Kind of like that feeling when you get a huge spike of pain for no reason. All of a sudden, it really yep. gets your attention, you know, consciously and the whole nervous system, and it and it reacts. Yep, it's it's like a panic attack of the back. Yeah, that's cool. A panic attack of the back. I like that. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question about John Sarno. You ever read any John Sarno books? Like I, I did in 1991 when I was like 19, or no, not 91, like 93 when I was like 19. I used to yeah. always read his stuff. So I, I've been in on this stuff for- so you were, You've been woke for a long time. Oh, forever. I wrote a paper on central sensitization in 97 for an ergonomics class. When did you get started with your uh, education? Now, you've been to Cairo school. You've been to PT school. When did that start? Uh, 92 was when I started kinesiology and then a master's in 96 and then so, Cairo. So and There must have been a time when you were you know, not woke, when you kind of- believed all of what was being taught in terms of, you know, this is the wrong I, way to posture yourself. And I, I had conflicting stuff from the start because my, my biomechanics professors were very much biomechanics is very important in neutral spine, but the, the man, it was mostly men at Waterloo. It was all, uh, that I haven't, no, it's pretty bad. Uh, it, they, sorry, the, the biomechanics professors were teaching how important psychosocial was in 97. I remember Bob Norman, it's a great professor, did a debate with, uh, maybe it was Michelle Bache at NACOB. It's the North American Congress on Biomechanics. And she argued for the psychosocial factors being more important than biomechanics. And he he had to uh, argue the biomechanics side, but he said, I don't really want to do this. I don't, it's not just biomechanics, right? So I, I learned really young that it's an interplay. Although okay. what I think happened through my career is maybe earlier, I thought, the I acknowledged the psychosocial but I still thought biomechanics was leading. Yeah. So, and so I still think that sometimes I just, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, that kind of raises the question of, you know, are we making any, any progress here? <laughs> you know, I, I, I see you occasionally point out um, how there's, you know, mainstream ideas out there about how to treat pain that really should have should have gone away quite a while ago, you know, two decades, three decades, we had really solid information that, uh, that we shouldn't be doing this, or we shouldn't be thinking this. And there's this idea that we're going in circles, or we're not making progress, or we're not learning. So, so what do you think about the ability of this whole institution, which treats these common pains, which is the biggest medical problem in the world? What is its ability to make progress and learn from mistakes and go forward? Yeah, I think, um, to be honest, I am an optimist where I think because we don't understand pain very well, I think a lot of things can help people, right? Uh, but we get caught up in thinking we know the mechanisms, right? Or that there's a right way to do something instead of instead of really trying to find, again, the common threads of, of good treatment. And I think when you simplify and just sort of find the common threads, so let, here, let, I'll give you an exercise example. Well, I think biomechanics is important, just not the way it's consist, uh, traditionally been done, right? I think it, the like what you said, your your exercise prescription for back pain, that's great. That's all. That's probably the primary thing. So let's stop discussing the right exercise and let's let's focus on the bigger questions that we aren't asking or the other questions that we aren't asking to improve our skills. And I don't think we do that. We get caught up in having debates about. Um, don't let the TFL turn on when you do a hip abduction exercise for IT band pain. Make sure it's just the glute meds firing and the glute max because you'll tension it and don't go into compression or something like that. We have all these little rules and we have those debates. 
you know, and, and that, that's it. That isn't where we should be spending our time. We should be spending our time on like what we don't know and what, what we should be adding or, yeah, I don't know. That doesn't really answer it, but <laughs> that's my well, it, it doesn't totally answer it. Cause what I, what I want to, what I kind of want to ask Sorry. about is, are we, you know, is the science teaching us anything? You know, no, at, it's at certainly the- not. We're not there. There's, I mean, Louis Gifford, uh, would have practiced just like me, uh, whatever, 20 to 30 years ago. And everyone could read his books and learn a ton. So are you, so are you kind of a pessimist about, uh, you know, are we, uh, about, um, you know, making progress towards getting away from these really biomechanically oriented approaches? I don't think we are at all. I think biomechanists are doubling down and, uh, uh, measuring more things and still saying, no, no, we just haven't measured it the right way. If we get more information on the loading on this part of the knee, then we'll be able to make, and we got to measure the cumulative load with these running metrics. No, I think, I, I don't think we are at all, but then what they'll do is they'll dress it up with psychosocial talk. I mean, we have to look at sleep and all these other things, but they really want emphasis and all the other stuff. So I don't, I don't think so. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's getting more biomechanical. So the so the pendulum is not swinging. I don't think so. I think it's over there, and maybe they're adding stuff onto it. Uh huh. But, but you have more and more people, um, you know, going to your courses and kind of knowing what's going on in your courses. Do you think that there are, you know, maybe kind of like some sub faction of the whole which is getting? Oh yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. But I guess there's not uh, any kind of is is the education for PTs changing the way the way things are taught in schools. So I can only comment when I have people who take my course who are like teachers. Uh, so it's very select. So I think right. at an individual level, it is. There's a lot of, and I think I'll, I think most, the vast majority of teachers are well-intentioned in the training. So I'm, they're just trying to do their best. And I, I, uh, I, I completely understand that like someone, someone was shitting on ultrasound the other day and saying it wasn't uh, like, why is it taught in the, in the training programs? When you actually go look at the research on ultrasound, you can find systematic reviews saying it's okay, right? Like, so how can a professor, if they've always done it and they have good clinical results with it, not teach it if they can also quote an SR saying it? You know what I mean? Like we, so there you have systematic reviews saying ultrasound is okay. Uh, but some, some people say don't teach it. But then at the same time, you'll have uh clinicians say compression is horrible for the tendons. It's evidence-based where there's hardly any research on that, but that now that's accepted dogma. Uh-huh. Right. So it's weird. Like I, I just have trouble blaming any, any teachers out there for putting in some things that some people hate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and if, and if you're in the more, if you're in the more bike bio psycho, if, if you're in the more kind of psychosocial ends of things and you'd like to see that emphasize more and you spend all of your time, uh, critiquing and being skeptical of the people that do ultrasound or more biomechanical approaches. Um, if you applied the similar amount of scrutiny to the research yeah. and the benefits of therapeutic neuroscience education, absolutely, uh, you probably have a lot to complain about there as well. No, the uh, the things that I teach and the way I practice, I know that it could be and it should be easily scrutinized and critiqued. Yeah, and if we're consistent in our criticisms, well. <laughs> <laughs> then you should just be as doubtful as I am of certain things. Yeah. Yeah. I just have trouble t- telling someone that they suck. Right? <laughs> I don't think you're that bad at it. Really. I, 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 you know, don't sell yourself short. Uh, no, I, I like, it's weird. It's, it's very nuanced. I just, when I question people, I'm like, you can't say that so strongly. It's not fair. Like when people say don't stretch tendons, I'm like, huh? How can you say that so, so with such um, strength? You well, know, uh, tell tell us a little bit more about stretching tendons. You've kind of presented some interesting facts about that well, recently. I'm a little bit I, different than I, other people say. I'm a good person to talk about stretching because honestly, 20 years ago, more than that now, I was very much against stretching, and I knew all the literature, and I and I just thought it's stupid and a waste of time. But I think I jumped, and even five years ago, I wrote a paper with Kieran Sullivan and Sean McAuliffe about why we shouldn't stretch and it's overrated. And I've backed that up. Like I've backed off of that. I think it's too strong an opinion that, that we made these strong opinions without really good evidence. Like there is some evidence that stretching before activity 
uh, will prevent some muscle injuries. Like you can look at the work of, um, uh, sorry, is it David Bam? Yeah, David Bam and these and Blazevich and these systematic reviews. But people ignore that. They just they just quote some other systematic review, right? Uh -huh. So so what with tendons, what you hear is people will say, "Don't stretch a tendon." It's uh, uh, there's no evidence for it to you know to help a tendinopathy. But then you're like, "Well, have you ever directly compared it to a loading program?" No, those studies don't exist. Or uh, with a progressive loading program for Achilles tendinopathy, has that ever been compared to uh, a non-progressive loading program or a really good sham exercise program? No. And in the hip, when it is, it's been compared for gluteal tendinopathy, the Ganderton study, there is no difference between the groups. Progressive loading protocol did and not outperform a sham. And kind of load that a tendon knows, right? Yeah. So that's tension. So then what people will say is they'll say, don't, it's not the stretching, the tensile loading that's problematic. You don't want to do stretching because you have to go to end range. And when you go to end range on some tendons, there's a compressive force between the tendon and the bone. So if it's an insertional Achilles tendinopathy, the, the Achilles tendon will pinch or squeeze against the calcaneus. Uh, if it's in the hip, hip adduction will cause comp compressive loading, you know, at the one of the glute med or glute min uh, tendons. And so the basic science research shows that sometimes you have more tendinopathy or tendinosis uh, at the compressive sites. That's it. No one, no one's done a study like showing that, you know, if you don't remove compression, these people won't get better or removing compression or not stretching is superior to exercises that have compression loading. Right. Yeah, so it might be, it absolutely might be. Uh, it, it's potential, but no, no one's tested it, right? They'll just say, well, in my clinical experience, compressive loading is harder on the tendon. All right. And then I say, well, how do you decide not to do it? Well, it hurts. I'm like, okay, so you're just telling me don't do something that hurts for a little bit. Great. No problem. I could have told you that too. Yeah. Right. I, yeah, I have no problem. I have no problem with that. Right? And that's it. That's what I mean. The tendon. Yeah. It's a stress on the tendon. Why can't the tendon adapt to get better at that kind of stress? That's the job of a tendon. It's not like tendons didn't know there was going to be compression. Exactly. Exactly. So then I didn't you know go there back. There's going to be compression here. I'm not, I am just a tendon. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So that that's why I made a joke this morning. And I said, like, and I've, I've actually said this for six years. I'm like, is uh, tendon compression the new spine flexion? <laughs> you know, like, why are we, why are we so worried about it? If it hurts for a bit, okay, avoid it. But you know what's interesting is, especially in the tendon literature, we see that people can, or in the hamstring rehab literature or in the shoulder, we see that people are don't underperform when they do exercises that are painful. So maybe it's not even a factor. Maybe you don't even have to avoid it, right? So that, that type of study would have to be done. You compare a progressive loading program without stretching to a progressive loading program with stretching and no avoidance or minimal avoidance. And then, then you can start saying strong, like conclusions, like stretching and compression is bad until yeah. such time say, maybe, I guess, kind of, this is why I think so. It could be like, be a little sheepish and, and humble. Sheepish. Good. So what, uh, what other studies like I'm arrogantly sheepish, you just, <laughs> I have a weird, my wife doesn't understand me. I am like humble and humility here, but I, I guise it in arrogance. I don't know how I can. <laughs> I see you. I'm a I special you. person. I, I see it. I see the humbleness. Um, so yeah, let's arrogance. say that you've done research. Let's say you had all right. the money you want, all the time you want. What's the first three or four studies you can do and then figure something out and answer a question that's kind of on your mind? Oh, God. That's like, I don't know. I have so many interests here. Uh, what type of studies I would do? Oh, that's hard, man. Um, I can, I'll speak more broad uh terms i do my favorite areas is related to this it's expose or protect i really love those studies like uh, karen uh, silbernagel um jack hickey these ideas of like poking into pain you know uh even like the work of shirley sarman and, and that group like uh balden i don't know her first name but the, these ideas of like um do we have, or, or the running literature with uh, hip adduction being associated with knee pain? My my big question is like, do we really have to change how people uh, move to get out of pain? Or can we 
can we do other things that allow them to tolerate those sensitive movements? Right. That, 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 that's what I like. That's, that's, that's my favorite question with rehab. Like I kind of acknowledge there's going to be drivers of sensitivity. Do we have to fix those or can we just build someone up or develop some other attribute? So those drivers or sensitivity are no longer a problem. Right. Like that type of that that's exciting to me. Cause like, I, I like, I like that with the psychosocial. Can you can you be fear avoidant and a perseverator and catastrophize? And that's just who you are. That's your trait. But never really have to change that. But you develop some other ability to tolerate those things. So it applies across the board with the biopsychosocial. It's not just a mechanical thing. Uh-huh. Yes. So you're always interested in what's mediating recovery. Yeah, that's it. But it's it's just so hard to figure out, isn't it? Oh, Absolutely. So I never shit on researchers. If you publish something great, like everyone's like, why didn't you do this? I'm like, you know how hard it is to do those studies? <laughs> Be thankful they did it. And now someone else can follow up. <laughs> it's very hard. I mean, I've been, you know, reviewing uh, research now for the uh, physio network for a year or two. And I read these papers in detail and, you know, on a variety of topics. And I remember reading one on like the question of whether the weather affects arthritis. Right. You know, everyone, everyone, uh, oh, you know, I, the, the humidity bothers my knee or the, you know, the, when it's cold, that's what, that's when this hurts. And should I move to Arizona? People have been looking at this for a long time. It seems like it should be pretty easy to figure out. You can track people's, <laughs> you know, uh, daily pain journal and then correlate it with the weather. And is there a correlation? Seems like that's not that hard to figure out, but they've been studying it and studying it and studying it and studying it, and they can't freaking figure it out. And it's like more research is needed. And I was like, we're never gonna, we're never gonna no. learn anything about no anything. Yeah. No, I know. E even simple things like uh, you would think, uh, like with knee pain, patellofemoral pain syndrome, you'd think we know if uh, if uh, quad weakness was a risk factor. Like that, people have said you got to strengthen your kneecaps for years. And when you look at the literature, this would be um, uh, Brad Neal's systematic review. It's only a risk factor in two studies in the military population. That's it. It's not even that well studied yet. Yet strength training seems to be helpful, but is it because they got stronger? So even something like that, like just the we strength, know whether strength training protects you from injuries and in running. No, that per that's a perfect question. It's it. There's two papers that have studied it, uh, and everyone said, and they didn't find it to be protective. Maybe kind of three. There was another like preparation one, uh, and everyone's because people want to say that strength training protects you. It makes sense, kind of, and they'll say, well, that wasn't a good enough strength training program, <laughs> and which might be true. So the strength training programs they did uh, in those studies, I think one was Carolyn Emery's research, and I forget the author of the other one. I do know one of the authors was the, he's the Jordan. Ah, it doesn't matter. I haven't thought about that for a while. Um, but they, it wasn't successful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, do, it's, do we, uh, it's, sorry. What about ahead. other sports? Don't we have pretty good information that strength training is a good, is going to protect you from injury and soccer or yeah I mean, yeah yeah i mean the the nicest uh, you have these general studies where they just look at overall injuries and in general it's it's protective at, at a individual injury level like hamstring you see that definitely nordic hamstrings help uh, other ones might help too but they've just studied the nordic hamstring it's uh it's not a massive reduction but it's it's still there you know in the, it, yeah. at a team level def definitely seems to help with recurrence like recidivism if you already already had one injury you know uh at an occupational level you know people who strength train or exercise that seems to decrease low back pain right right so, so there's, right. there's something there not nothing's like a bullet not, nothing makes you bulletproof those things online but it decreases your well, wait a minute wait a minute you can put butter in your coffee and then you'd be bulletproof. <laughs> i know that yeah, well, if you do squats with it, yeah. <laughs> your hand. So, uh, well, I'm taking about an hour of your time. I don't want to take too much more, but uh, I want to know what uh, what are you going to do when when this lockdown ends? What's your What's your plans for the future? You, you, you know what I, I I want to get back to traveling and teaching. <laughs> That's a, and I want to get the hell away from my family. <laughs> you got to do it. 
and they want me that's gone probably too. a two-way street oh yeah they're they're, they're waiting for me to mutual leave. i actually did travel in september everything i just September because I, I went to Vancouver and uh, and Denmark where there was like no cases and there's no cases here in Toronto so that was nice to get away for two weekends <laughs> <laughs> well so let's uh, I'll hope that you can get back to for traveling soon that that'll be good for you and good for the uh, everyone who takes your courses and what where can we uh so you, we can get information about you at, at greglehman.com or gregleman.ca yeah Canadian what does ca mean uh Canadian, maybe. Where is Canada? Chartered accountant. I think it's north of Mexico. I don't know where it is. Relative. Well, there's something to the in States, between, though. <laughs> Anything else? Any other messages you'd like to leave with my audience, or or, or places we can find you, or upcoming stuff, or, uh, or anything? Not Facebook. <laughs> hey, Facebook. I do more on Instagram. That's been fun. I've been like putting stuff on besides my tumbling and my uh, 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 narcissism. Uh, uh, and then, uh, but I don't really like discussing things on Instagram. I do like Twitter and you know that. And you're like, get off of Twitter, get on Facebook. I just, uh, no, no. You know, I've changed my mind. I got a Facebook too. Um, and oh, okay. I got, and I, and not that I'm on Twitter or anything, but well, I used to complain to Greg all the time that he would have these conversations on Twitter, which seem totally undermined by the fact that you only get a short amount of characters and they would like have this argument for, you know, like this massive confusing thread and then find out at the end of it that they actually agree with each other because no one could figure out what the other was saying. So it's also short and quick when it could have been worked out in Facebook. But now I think that that, that the shortness of Twitter is, is more of a feature than a bug because a lot yeah. of these conversations are useless. <laughs> even yeah. when you do understand, I mean, Facebook is conversations to me oh. suddenly got very, very bad around last year and i i just got out of them oh uh, yeah i know yeah me too yeah too many too much but uh thank you very much for uh coming on greg i appreciate it yeah thank you okay i'm gonna hit 